Welcome to How to Cover an Election, where four broadcast journalism students tackle an election campaign for the first time. Each week we're talking to experts in their fields as we look at all the key themes for the media in the build-up to the polls. We'll also talk you through our experiences of election coverage as the contest heats up. Hello and welcome to another week of How to Cover an Election. For this extra episode, we're discussing local news coverage of elections with Emma Meese, Director of Community Journalism here at Cardiff University. But first, you may be aware of what we got up to last week. Seven political parties, seven leading figures debating the right way forward for the country. Welcome to Cardiff and the National Assembly for Wales for the BBC election debate. So last week we were working down at the Senedd in Cardiff Bay for the BBC's big election debate on Friday night. Guys, it's a good experience, isn't it? Yeah, it was definitely a good experience. Uh, a little bit different than what I anticipated originally uh, into, in terms of what we had to do and what we were doing throughout the, the programme or the preparation for the programme. Uh, just makes us realise really the scale of the operation how big this actual thing is it was huge wasn't it absolutely huge. I thought it was amazing how many yeah. I think there were 150 crew there and me and Chloe arrived on the Wednesday night so two days before it all kicked off and it was just this all the rigging was there but it was just this kind of wooden shape where the stage was going to be and then we gradually saw it transform into this like uh, very slick looking set everyone was working like hell for leather when we got there on Wednesday night just you know I think they were sanding down the stage they were drilling holes in the lectins for you know the microphones to go in and stuff for the leaders it was it was absolutely crazy for those of you that didn't see the BBC's election debate on Friday night, they basically turned the reception area of the Senedd into the debate in studio. So very different to a lot of the other debates that we've seen on TV this year. And the thing is, it would be so much easier to do it in a normal studio, but it does definitely add something when you're in this, like... I was going to say, it is a historic building, even though it's fairly new, as in this yeah. building that actually means yeah. something to, to British democracy. It does it does add something to the debate, I think. Yeah, it mm-hmm. definitely does. Yeah, it's, it's an iconic building for Welsh politics, so you can't disregard that as a fact, can you, really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of things we were doing as runners over the course of those two and three days. Guys, do you want to just run us through some of the things that we were doing? Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think we should point out something that we learned the hard, oh, it was all very fun, but learned the hard way, which is that a lot of TV work is not that glamorous. Absolutely. Which, um, <laughs> no. Our course director here, Matt, who's done a lot on TV, said that was an important lesson that we had to learn, and we did learn it. So I know, Gareth, you had a bit of an experience running all over Cardiff. Yeah, so come Friday morning, um, there was still a number of things that, that needed doing ready for the evening's debate, one of which was getting together um, the glasses that both the presenter, Nick Robinson, um, and the individual panellists were going to drink from. Um, the glasses in the Senate weren't up to up to the standards <laughs> that the, the floor manager wanted. I remember me and you were on the debate stage having quite an in-depth discussion about the Quite an in-depth debate Ikea. about, about yeah. the size of glasses. Yeah, exactly, yeah. um, so I had to have a troll online at different shops within the Cardiff area that sold drinking glasses. Um, and eventually found some... I'm not saying I was the biggest cog in, in the chain of, of, of putting together this debate. Wish but, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if someone doesn't go and get glasses on a Friday morning, then no. for an hour and a half debate in the evening, then no one's drinking water. I've... Gareth, was it satisfying seeing the politicians drink from the glasses you had provided? Well, Every I'm going to do, for the first time on this debate, I'm going to do a shout-out for my mum. I did tell my mum beforehand 
that when she sees somebody drinking from the glasses, it was me who got those. And she did text me during the debate, actually saying, I just saw one of the glasses. <laughs> so I felt fulfilled by the end. Okay. Me, me and Ev had a similar experience being on hold for hours. We had to get some oh. kind of memory card for, for the, one of the tech teams. And oh. me and Ev rang around every tech shop in Cardiff. I was on hold to customer service at various shops that I won't name. When you finally got it, it was so yeah, satisfying. It was. Wasn't it? But mm-hmm. just briefly coming back on the glass point, you know, and these are things you'd never, never think of. Because the podiums were already there, weren't the they? And we saw there. how big the platform to put the glass was on, so we were measuring that yeah. and seeing how... But it's important, because last night I was watching the ITV debate and Adam Price was on there again, and Adam Price tends to wave his arms around quite a lot yeah. whilst, he's, whilst he's talking. And, of course, one of the concerns about these glasses and the glasses that the Senate had was they had long and thin ones. Now, if you knock that over mid-debate, it's a bit of a catastrophe for a live broadcast. So it is important. Well, funny enough, when we went to the Adam Price Ask for Leaders debate, a couple of weeks ago, Adam Price did knock over his water <laughs> you know, really? on, on his podium. Luckily, before it, started, yeah, before it started, before the broadcast started, but there was, I think, was it about a minute before they were due to go on air, they were, uh, there was a woman on the floor mopping it yeah. up, mopping up the water. <laughs> but it wasn't just going and finding glasses. There were many other things that we were doing over the over the course of the week. That that ran from um, running outside to make sure that all the guys in the outdoor outside broadcast trucks were all um, suitably well lubricated. lubricated. By cups of tea, not alcohol. Yeah, we should make that. Um, (laughs) I think we should talk about the more glamorous side of it, which was the absolutely the fake pre-debate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we met Adrian Masters, who spoke on Friday's episode, he mentioned how in the in the lead up to the debate, they have a rehearsal just to make sure that everything's working—a technical rehearsal, um, just make sure all the camera angles are are correct and that the presenter knows where everyone's going to be standing and can and rehearse that. So we stood in for the candidates uh, on Thursday, guys. Mm -hmm. It was great fun, wasn't it? It was such good fun. So I think so. I was Rebecca Long Bailey for Labour, and you were Gareth was Richard Tice. Um, and I was Joe Swinson. Chloe was Joe Swinson, and our, our friend Fionn, who isn't on the podcast but was a massive help as well, was. Um, who did she play? She was Caroline Lucas. And then Ev was the question asker who seemed to wander around the stage. Yeah. yeah. But I think it was. We, we had about two hours to prepare. So we went through the party's manifestos and got some key talking points and some key lines that we thought they might say. And then we were told that to be as helpful as possible, we should interrupt each other as much as possible so that the presenter could have a chance to kind of practice calming everything down. It was for him to deal with a worst case scenario type thing, wasn't it really? Mm. And it was so, good fun and we were, you know, we had gone into a couple of little shouting me matches. Me and Gareth, we took each other on a couple of times. Took I each think. other on. It was, it, was, it was good fun but also quite daunting. It, it gave you a bit of an appreciation of what the actual panellists have to put up with. Add to the fact then that they're in front of a, a national audience on primetime mm. TV um, and it puts that into perspective but in terms of what we did on that debate stage, I think it was pretty important to make yeah. sure that everything was, was running and... Uh, it was just an opportunity that I think we all relished, really. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. Like, I have so much respect now for like whatever you think of their politics. I am not cut out to be a politician. I know that from that. It was absolutely daunting, especially having the presenter actually grill you as if you were, you know, as if I was Joe Swinson. I'd just kind of stand there dumbfounded, just like, I have no idea what the answer is to that question. As often you're asked a question, you prepared. So I, 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 for me, I prepared a load of stats on health spending, Labour's health spending that I was going to reel out when I was asked the question. And then the question was asked and it was framed completely differently from how I thought. And I was mm-hmm. absolutely stumped. Yeah. I was like, I, I just waffled on about some... You can see I, now why politicians give these non-answers because in your head you're going, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Yeah. But it's like, you know, even for me asking the questions, like running around the set, well, the, the miniature set area, 
you know, you just stood there and you're just waiting for your turn. It's quite actually nerve wracking. Even if there's nobody there and nobody's watching, yeah. you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, I will move on to our next question. And it's you. you yeah. know. But I was I was stumped a couple of times because obviously, again, even for the questioners, there had to be some sort of rehearsal mm. in respect. So I had to maybe make my little introduction a bit longer than anticipated. I know once the presenter mimicked, but he couldn't find me. You know, so just things like that, you, again, you don't necessarily think of, but you've got to do it because that's what they need to do. Yep. And whilst we're on the, the top, the subject of audiences, I think it's really important to address this point, which we brought up in last week's episode, which was that some of these debates have become almost like football matches. Um, one of the things I really liked about Friday's debate with Nick Robinson was there was a point made to the audience at the beginning, which was that this isn't a, another version of question time. Mm. It's actually going to be... Um, an opportunity for the politicians to take each other on and there was actually a request made to the crowd not to boo not to not to cheer not to get of course applaud if if somebody makes a point that's important um but to actually allow the politicians an opportunity to speak and i think people may disagree but i think that it actually did make for a more um informative debate i don't know what you guys thought i think it did and i hope it continues to the to the prime ministerial debate next week because I was re-watching the ITV Prime Ministerial debate so that I could get some tips on how to be Rebecca Long-Bailey from Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn. And you get the, the, the last two statements. Both politicians are booed during their statement and then massively applauded after, and it just makes for a bit of a pantomime. But in terms of, again, we had to even practice that as well as with the audience. We had to boo at some times. We had to be mm. loud and proud yeah. and say the presenter had to cool us down as to if it was going to happen. You know, Luckily, yeah. I, it didn't really happen to that scale on the actual thing itself, but it's all got to be practised. Yeah, it was pretty much preparing for every opportunity, every likelihood. And so when we were sitting in the production office waiting for it all to kick off and then watching what was unfolding, we were waiting for all of the the lines that the presenter had prepared for calming down the crowd and calming down the politicians, whether or not they were going to be used. And that was really interesting, seeing it all come together. And I also think from a technical point of view, when you're talking about booing and applauding from the audience, when that happens constantly during a, a broadcast, it actually eats into the time that mm. you, yeah. you what the debate is, is supposed to be about, which is the politicians being held to account on their answers. The final thing we should say is obviously that was the horrible news that came out during the final preparations about the London Bridge terror attacks on Friday afternoon. And it was interesting, again, how much that impacts the planning of the debate so this was all unfolding we still didn't know the extent of what was happening and it was straight away aware on set that a the script would have to be rewritten because of course that has to be acknowledged at the start and then the questions have to be said with a mind that each politician is going to want to say something about the attack and then me and ev were told that the prime minister was going to make a statement about the attack so we had to go in and to each yeah, party so we, room and yeah say, so we like ran around the party rooms and had to inform them that obviously the attack was sort of unfolding but we had a statement was imminent from boris johnson or was planned to be imminent so they could access it on the tellies which are in their rooms yes i understand it's got to be acknowledged and things like that but it did completely change the atmosphere of the mm. debate for the first 20 minutes, half an hour, which we wouldn't have anticipated. I think it was necessary and I think it was good that that happened because it was, you know, if I think it would have looked a lot worse if, it, you know, the, that in, that tragic incident hadn't, be, hadn't been acknowledged. I mean, we did say afterwards that, that you did then have a good five, ten minutes of politicians all reiterating the same thing, like condolences and thoughts and prayers. But I think that was kind of a good start, like to kind of create a level, level playing field for everyone. And then as you, I feel like, it wasn't as heated as perhaps we made out in the rehearsals, although we were ramping it up a bit. But I feel that you did get some feistiness between like Labour Conservatives and the Brexit Party like later on in the debate. All in all, though, I think it was a great opportunity and just like to take this opportunity to say thank you to the BBC for allowing us to go down there and help out. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely so. You're listening to How to Cover an Election. Keep up with us on social media by following at HowToElection on Twitter and Instagram. So something slightly different now. We've been studying this course and covering this election over the last month or so. Um, and we're told a lot about what journalists have to do, what things we should consider, like impartiality, a lot of rules and, and regulations in terms of what journalists do. But it wasn't until I went home a couple of weekends ago and I was taken to task actually on something I put on social media about how a lot of journalists and a lot of students of journalism are actually quite disconnected um, with the the areas they've come from or the areas that potentially we're going to be covering when we actually go into the world of work. Um, the criticism of me was that I was talking about something, some sort of Labour policy, um, and the criticism from somebody that I was in school with was that you've done a degree in politics, you're studying a journalism degree, and the way you use your language and the way that you, you talk is almost condescending. Um, I was quite taken aback by that, and my immediate reaction was defensive. But then when I thought about it, I thought, I go home and, you know, my dad has never had a, a, um, a degree of any sort let alone a political degree and a lot of them a lot of my friends that I was in school with don't have degrees and don't have the level of political education that I've had so I thought it'd be really useful to, to dedicate a part of this podcast this week to looking at challenges that actually face us when we're looking to represent our audiences and there's no way better of doing that than taking a closer look at hyperlocal news which is the news that covers specific geographical areas. So this week I spoke with Emma Meese, Director of Community Journalism at Cardiff University and that's a centre that's done a lot of work in Wales to set up hyperlocal publications across the country. And I started off by asking her, what are the challenges facing local media in coverage of national elections? It's about making it relatable. So we know that audiences or, you know, we class audiences, but readers and constituents often feel very disengaged with politics, particularly with everything that's been going on uh, over recent years. So it's our job to make them understand how and why these national policies impact them. So it's finding those local stories, local case studies, local examples of how national stories can absolutely impact on their day to day lives. So it could be to do with taxes or it could be to do with hospital waiting times or it could be you know any of those things is also making sure they understand what are devolved issues because we have so much coverage of health issues for example in national newspapers but they never make it that clear that those issues are devolved so we do have a lot more control in Wales for example um, of health issues um, but people generally might read a national story and think oh god this is going to impact me it's our job to make sure that they understand how these policies impact them so how to find the the um the local angle really on the big topics and then what value can hyper local organizations bring to coverage that maybe national organizations aren't or can't well huge because we've got that local knowledge we we're so much closer uh, on a local hyper local level to our audiences and our readers you know probably know them probably say good morning to them at the school gates in the morning so you're going to better know what issues they um, are interested in what things affect them on a day-to-day basis and it's finding out what policies relate to those local issues and putting them in front of them so they know exactly and asking those difficult questions so if you know there's an issue with I don't know huge potholes in your town or village then working out what's the national spend going to be on that and is that going to improve your roads and highways in any way and finding those issues and making the topics relatable but it you know it's really really important in a way that national journalists can't do that so there's been a big issue particularly that arose uh, following the referendum of what is described as parachute journalism where you'll get national newspapers 
who will decide, uh, you know, a really prime example is the Gurnos in Merthyr. So, you know, one of the, it's, it's dubbed one of the most deprived um, council estates in Europe, but some fantastic workers on in Merthyr. They're one of the most, you know, forward-thinking, community-led areas that I've come across. There's so many brilliant initiatives. However, um, you know, they get so disengaged with journalism, journalists, politics, because they said, you know what, nobody's interested in what we've got to say. They will parachute a journalist in from a national newspaper. They've already written the script. They're just looking for the images that will depict the area the way they want to depict it. They will then go and find somebody to give them the quote they're looking for, and then they'll leave again. So that is a big issue. So when you are a local reporter, you then, it's your duty to kind of make sure that you know exactly what the local issues are and surface those stories. Is there then a concern that national coverage of elections drowns out the work of these hyperlocals? I suppose it can't. I mean, it comes down to resources, and then it's up to you to really find out what are you, you know, what's the most important thing to cover. Obviously, if there's a big council meeting going on, and um, there's a big decision that's going to impact, um, you know, people in the community, then that's obviously really important to cover. If it's something just some sort of a bread and butter day to day stuff, then possibly it's more important that you cover, you know, um, some more of the election work. But you. You will kind of know and, and there's other ways that you can bring that in you know the example I gave earlier was potholes on the road so that could be a general state of our roads piece but that could also tie in with the election you can tie it in with policies so find out what policies uh, might be of interest and find out what are the case studies what local stories tell those issues or bring them to the surface so um, you know there are ways of combining both Many organisations may only have a couple of staff who are working on both of these things at once. What advice then do you give these journalists operating in this sort of environment? Um, again, it's it's just knowing your limitations and knowing, you know, listen to people and ask, um, you know, particularly on social media. We're very good at putting news out there. It's equally as important that we ask people, what would you like? And if you kind of say, look, you know, I've got four hours tomorrow and I can cover this or that. What would you like to find out about what's most important to you? And ask your readers, they'll tell you. So, um, you know, and they'll feel far more engaged with the process they'll feel more valued if you listen to them if you kind of feedback on what you've learned so there are ways of engaging the audience whilst you absolutely main control of the you know the stories and the storytelling but if you really are stumped between there's these two things happening tomorrow I think they're of equal importance just ask your audience you can do all sorts of things now you can do twitter polls you can do um, you know polls on, on facebook you can do lives there's lots of stuff that you can do to engage your audience and then that will kind of get them to be more involved in the whole process as well. Moving away then from hyperlocals themselves and, and the work that, that's being done there, a lot of organisations that Centre for Community Journalism have helped set up are in lower socio-economic areas, especially the South Wales Valleys where both Chloe and myself are from. Um, how do we as journalists then best deliver news to people like my friends and family back home who maybe have had no political education whatsoever and the only way they access any sort of political information comes through the media. 
Um, it's really important that you know how do they, what do they class as news and information and how do they access that. And in certain areas, particularly more up towards the Ronda Valleys, Facebook is incredibly important down in Patol, but Facebook is incredibly important. So there's no point in you as a journalist saying, I tweeted that out if your audience are not on Twitter. So find out where, where do they kind of hang out of an evening socially online and if that's Facebook, then make sure you engage with them on Facebook. And you will know, as being a part of that community, what the issues are. So if it's something to do with, you know, the local high street is closing down, it could be to do with local business rates or taxes or whatever. So then you can find a local case study about maybe a shop that's been open for 50 years that's about to close. And as part of that story, you explain why and how their vote can change that or impact it and why their voice is important. So I've got, you know, a huge campaign that I really want every young person and child growing up in Wales and across the UK to understand that their voice is important and that everyone's got a story to tell. So we have been working with NEU, the National Education Union in Wales, on creating a 10-week journalism schools programme. It's a toolkit for schools and we're hoping to have at least one teacher in every single school in Wales by the end of next year that can roll this programme out because, um, because of things like the referendum in uh, the Gurnos, I ran two after-school journalism clubs in two primary schools there. And the parents, the teachers and the children were all saying, well, nobody cares about us. Our voices don't matter anyway. And they absolutely do. So it's engaging those people on issues that matter to them um, is the way to do it on platforms that they already exist in. So there's no point in saying, you know, well, I've, as I said, I've tweeted it out if the audience is on Facebook. So it's kind of knowing where and how to converse with them and on that that point about platforms and social media obviously that's that's an area that's exploded and there's so much shouting going on in social media how would we then as journalists cut through that noise that could be from political parties national press all in that social media um, arena how do we cut through that to speak to these people that we're looking to to inform um, the way to do that is by including them in your stories and your storytelling. You know, if you tell me any single person over the years that, you know, their photo's been in the local newspaper that haven't then had their aunties, their uncles, their cousins the following day walking down the street with that newspaper folded under their arms, it's exactly the same thing if they're tagged or mentioned or somebody they knows in a story. So as soon as you start really engaging with people on a local level and including their voices and their stories, so there's tools that we can use, um, such as advanced searches and geo-searches, so that if we are looking at um, a topic, for example, it could be, I don't know, health or hospital waiting times, you know, we can we can use social media as journalists, such as anybody can, but it's a really useful tool to um, say, okay, well, I only want to know what people within a three-mile radius of, and you could put the postcode of the hospital, you know, anybody within a three-mile radius of this that's tweeting the word hospital, I want to know what they're talking about or Instagramming or whatever it may be. And then that's where you start to find your case study and opinions so we're not saying what we think they're thinking we're actually listening to them so if we listen first then we contact them and say thank you this is really interesting we're now going to go and do a report on this do you mind if we quote you or whatever it is include them tag them use relevant hashtags um, geotag things locally and that's how you'll get found and heard above the noise in terms of the things that we actually cover 
do we as journalists potentially too easily assume that people should be interested in some of the national issues that we're interested or that we're following as journalists? We do. So what we do is we kind of go, oh, God, this is outrageous and we need everybody needs to know about this. But again, it comes back to perception. So whilst we know that at the root of it, it is of the utmost importance or relevance to um, people in particular areas, if they don't think that or they don't know that, then we have to find a way of making it relevant to them. So there's no point just saying, you know, um, Corbyn versus, uh, you know, uh, you know Boris Johnson. Um, you know, there's this is going on and they're saying this and that. Unless we can make that relatable and say, do you realise that if this policy comes through, it will mean this is going to impact, um, I don't know, parking for outside the school or this is going to impact hospital waiting times or this is going to reduce this or increase that or improve this. Then unless we make that link and we say, you know, uh, this is relevant to you because of this then otherwise it's completed it's it, it you know it's that old thing of you know why should i vote my my voice doesn't matter of course if you have a million people say that then you know it could have a huge impact and a final question from me with the state of the media currently distrust in the media especially in you know areas where people feel that they've been forgotten or their voices aren't being heard do you see a positive future for local journalism in these areas Absolutely. Um, and a big issue. So if you look at uh, going back to the referendum again, sorry to have mentioned that a few times and, and uh, the initial Brexit vote, but more people in certain areas of Wales read the Daily Mail and the Sun than any other newspaper. And that's why they voted leave in their droves, because they didn't understand uh, how it impacted. They looked at the headline top news, um, you know, sort of the, the news headlines and didn't really think about how it impacted them on a day to day basis. And that's where local journalism really Really comes in is that you kind of say well actually uh, you know the local hospital was funded by this and that was funded by that and and how we can fight to have improved resources and to get people's voices heard so um, yeah absolutely without uh, on the ground local journalists who know what they're doing then um, we could end up in a very sorry state of affairs uh, in years to come. Emma Meese thank you very much. Thank you very much. So guys, it's quite likely that our first jobs when we leave university are either going to be with local publications or sort of local or regional news outlets. So I thought that was really beneficial in terms of looking at who our audiences are. What do you guys think? Well, I think it was interesting that at the at the BBC debate, we were lucky enough to bump into Laura Koonsberg, who's the BBC political editor. We asked her advice on this kind of thing, and she said that you become a much better journalist by working in local media which was, I mean, interesting. You get to know an area and you really get into the nitty-gritty of things. I was going to say, it's just like building foundations, isn't it? You've got to start at the bottom. You've got to do the little stories or the little things, you know, the local communities, what's going on. It's a really good foundation to build yourself up for bigger stories and more national stories. And, Chloe, you come from Caerphilly just like I do. Yeah. We obviously have quite a strong local um, newspaper in Caerphilly, the Caerphilly Observer, that, that we're covering the election currently. Do you think that we're in a bubble here in Cardiff University before we go before we go home and actually address what people are actually concerned about? Yeah, I do think so. I think it's not as big as a bubble compared to national news. But on the flip side of that, I think for me coming from a place where I'd often concentrate on on really national things and even still here this term I've been concentrating on things like the Welsh political barometer and these big election stories at the same time we've we've done hyperlocal stories I've done stories about councils giving planning permission to McDonald's or you know market stalls not being open and that has been a real education in what actually matters to people 
But I still think specifically one of the things that Emma said then was that you should make it about the people, the people that are affected. So even if it's a huge policy area on a UK level, even a European Union level, you have to break it down to how that affects people locally. Two questions then for all of you. Do you think, firstly, the media does that enough? And secondly, do you think we've done it enough so far? I think in terms of us here in Wales, it's probably a lot harder because if you if you look at how the regions are sort of divided in the UK in general, if you've slightly got a smaller region, okay, there might be more surplus population, but you might be able to get that hyper-local type of news in there. Not, I'm not necessarily saying a massive point about it, but it's more maybe more likely compared to Wales, because we are a nation and we've only got two news outlets in ITV or whatever, but it's hard for us to focus on that hyper-local in such a big area. But I think... Well, that's where the much maligned vox pop can work it's like you were just saying it doesn't matter how big the policy is it's just where you then get the coverage from so for example like you're talking about European policies if there was say something on the European fishing laws it is actually really interesting to go and speak to fishermen in a village in Scotland saying say, how has this affected you and your business when we're being taught here about you know finding a story and wording a story and thinking about the top lines and things like that you do kind of get into the mindset where you want to interview someone and you want them to say something specific you're often looking for just that top line so there is a tendency to focus on just getting that top line not actually thinking about the story as a whole and other other perspectives on the story and things like that and well we had a discussion before we actually spoke to Emma um, about you know we're we're interested in some of the national topics like say anti-semitism in the Labour Party Islamophobia in the Conservative Party and you asked me and now I'm going to reverse it and ask you do you think that people on a local constituency level really care about the stories like that? So on the one hand, yeah, and I think it's patronising of people to say they don't because it's a bit like saying, oh, look, we're the really politically interested ones. You just carry on worrying about potholes. So, yeah, I think they do. But on the flip side, I think we underappreciate how much local stuff also makes a difference. Mm. And if there's a really pressing local issue, it's it's not surprising that someone may vote on that basis. And I think if you keep that rhetoric going... That's probably what makes people feel disenfranchised. I know people in the South Wales Valleys from where I'm from, they're really dissatisfied with the way that they feel they've been portrayed in the media and that they, you know, there's there's the whole stereotype of people didn't know what they were voting for in Brexit, which Emma mentioned. And I think, you know, people feel like they, they're being isolated in that sense by the national view. But it is important for journalism in, in general, really, that we do keep these hyper-local newspapers, maybe these hyper-local groups where... Those, those stories do get out into some sort of platform. Admittedly, you know, it's not going to happen overnight where it gets to the top level, but you've got to start somewhere. So keeping these things is going to be important to make sure that people's voices at the lowest level of society, maybe, is heard. And remember what Nick Webb said on the podcast a few weeks ago when he said that you need to ask the questions that people aren't asking, and that is often done by the hyperlocal papers. So there's plenty more we'll be doing this week on some of these smaller issues as Friday's episode is covering devolution and how devolved issues are a big consideration for broadcasters during election cycles. But that's all we've got time for for this extra episode. Will, how can people follow us on Facebook? You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash howtoelection. And Ev, how can people follow us on Instagram and Twitter? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, which is at howtoelection. And Chloe? You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and it would be great if you could leave us a little review and give us a rating. But until Friday's episode, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.